thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. Something uh, that not many of you will know about me is that I've got a bit of a thing for pottery. Uh, I particularly like to collect stoneware or earthenware pottery. Uh, crockery is kind of what I've got. Uh, it's practical and functional, so that's helpful. Uh, I've got some very nice stuff locally from Macmillan's who always produce great bright colours. Uh, I've got some fantastic Cornishware from England, which is first what got me hooked. Uh, and we eat every meal at our place off a fairly comprehensive collection of Tamuka stoneware. Uh, the thing you fear most when you have pottery and it's something you collect is breakage. Uh, dropping something can be catastrophic, particularly if it's Denby or Pool. Uh, nice vintage Pool, 1958, two-tone, uh, sky blue, uh, and dove grey is kind of the epitome of what I wish my cupboards were full of. I've lost a few pieces over the years, but thankfully nothing that I own is particularly rare or expensive. It's not really valuable. Uh, but if something is broken, it needs to be mended or thrown in the bin, doesn't it? In Japan, there is a wonderful method of repairing broken earthenware or stoneware. It's called kintsugi. And the broken pottery is taken and fused back together, but not with glue. It is fused back together with lacquer and gold. It creates a beautiful restoration and it adds value to the broken object, not only making it useful again to be able to fulfill its purpose, but it makes it even stronger and more valuable in the process of repair. Over the past few weeks, we've seen the brokenness of Peter, who denied ever knowing Jesus when Jesus was arrested. As we come to this closing part of John's Gospel, we're going to see Jesus take Peter who is broken, and restore him. Peter will be healed and rebuilt and strengthened. On that journey, we'll have to grapple first with an awkward question in verses 15 to 19. And then we'll follow Peter and James and John as they walk on the beach in verses 20 to 23. And then finally, we'll spend a few minutes looking at John's conclusion in verses 24 and 25. We know where we're going this morning, so why don't we pray? Father God, we thank you for your word and that you speak to us by it. We pray this morning that you'd help us to understand why you asked such an awkward question of Peter and that we would ask that same question of ourselves, do we love you? Lord, we thank you for your love for us, which opens our ears and our hearts and the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would do that now so that we might love you in a way that is pleasing to you. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, well, we know that Peter and Jesus are in the presence of the other disciples as they come and eat this breakfast meal together. They've just been eating some of the fish that was caught after Jesus revealed himself to them for the third time after his resurrection. And as they sit together now, Jesus asks Peter a question. I think the question feels awkward. When, it, when you heard it, did your stomach drop? 
Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? It seems like a question that's out of character for Jesus, doesn't it? There are three potential questions that Jesus could be asking when we look at the Greek. The first is, do you love me more than these men love me? The second is, do you love me more than you love these men? Or third, do you love me more than these things? And if he's talking about things, presumably he's talking about the nets and the boat. So Jesus might be asking, do you love me more than fishing? Uh, For some of us, that might be a difficult question. In the context of the passage, though, it makes the most sense to read it as, do you love me more than you love these other men? Uh, Sorry, more than these other men love me. Why does Jesus go here? He's not trying to pit Peter against the rest. And I think it's that possibility which makes us cringe when we first read the question. It doesn't fit with what we know of Jesus, who tries to dismantle claims of favoritism at every turn. In asking the question, that's actually what he's doing. He's dismantling this idea of favoritism. He reveals Peter's heart. He names and exposes Peter's own claims before Jesus was arrested that he would show a higher devotion, a greater faithfulness, and bear a greater cost than the other disciples. Peter had claimed that he would be steadfast. Matthew and Mark both record it. Jesus says something like, even if everybody else deserts you, I never would. In John 13, he asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. It's an awkward question because just like the disciples, we know the backstory. We know that despite Peter's claims of a greater love, he didn't love Jesus more than the others when Jesus was arrested. He was afraid to the point of denying Jesus three times. Now the question is, will you love me, the crucified, risen Lord, the way you didn't love me before? Jesus exposes Peter's brokenness to him so that he might restore him. Peter's reply shows a change in him. There is no grand claim in Peter's words. He says a simple yes. And he acknowledges that Jesus knows him. Jesus knows his heart. He's just been shown it. Peter's expectations of Jesus have changed over the last few chapters. And now we see his acceptance of a crucified and risen Lord, the thing that was unthinkable to him before. Peter has grasped who Jesus is. Not a Messiah who will conquer the Romans, but a Messiah who has conquered sin and death. But that's not the only thing that is awkward about this question, the question, do you love me more than these other guys do? I think we can feel a bit awkward at the public nature of the questioning. Did you feel embarrassed for Peter when you read this question? He's asked in the presence of the disciples. These deep and searching questions are bad enough, but to have them asked in front of others seems to compound the awkwardness. It might feel awkward for us as we look on from a distance, but it was necessary. Peter's denial of Jesus had been public. The disciples know that Peter had denied following Jesus. 
And so the question is public. After a public question and a public confession, Jesus then publicly restores Peter. He says, feed my lambs. In these words, he places the mantle of ministry back on on Peter. Jesus reinstates him. Peter is to strengthen the church. He is to encourage and teach and love and nurture and shepherd the flock, that flock that belongs to Jesus. The response that is reiterated at each of the three times Jesus asks Peter the question is the same. When he says, do you love me? He says, feed my sheep, take care of my lambs. Three times he affirms Peter's ministry and calling. I think we also feel a bit awkward at the repetition that occurs. Surely Jesus could have just asked the question once, heard the response, and then moved on out of this awkward questioning. Even repeating the question three times hurt Peter, we see in verse 17. Now, sometimes a great deal is made of the two different words that Jesus uses for love here in the Greek, agape and filio. And that then becomes the reason that Jesus was repeating this question. But I'm not convinced that Jesus is pointing to anything significant with the change in usage between those two words here. I say that because he uses the two words interchangeably in other parts of John's gospel. And he does the same with the command, feed my sheep and feed my lambs. There's a change there, but we don't spend time looking at that as significant. Jesus repeats the question to emphasize Peter's redemption. Three times Peter denied Jesus. And now three times Peter confesses Jesus. And in the final time, it leads to his fullest confession in verse 17. Look at it with me. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter has grasped something wonderful. He doesn't need to compare himself to the other disciples. He just needs to confess Jesus as the Christ. Peter's confession here, yes, Lord, acknowledges who Jesus is. He is the all-knowing one who searches him, who discerns his going out and his lying down, who created Peter in his inmost being and knit him together in his mother's womb. Jesus knows his heart and tests him and his thoughts. Jesus is the one who is familiar with all of Peter's ways. Before a word is on Peter's tongue, Jesus knows it completely. He knows Peter's heart. He knows that Peter has been changed. He knows that Peter's faith is now firmly planted in the risen Lord, which will make all the difference when it's time to count the cost of following Jesus as Lord. Jesus explains in verse 18 that following him is going to cost Peter everything. Jesus reworks an old proverb about the diminishing autonomy that comes with ageing. Some of us will identify with that well. We know exactly what Jesus is talking about, where others will make decisions for us instead of us making decisions ourselves as we get older in this life. He takes this proverb to the point to the kind of death that Peter will die. In the early church, stretch out your hands became synonymous with martyrdom. 
Clement and Tertullian, who are later historians, share that anecdotally Peter was crucified, that his arms were stretched out on a cross. But refusing to be crowned with the same honour as Jesus, Peter asked to be crucified upside down. Now that can't be proved, but D.A. Carson reminds us what is absolutely rock solid here. He says, what is undisputed is that the indelible shame Peter bore for his public disowning of the Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was sentenced to death was forgiven by the Lord himself. And subsequently, overwhelmed by the apostles' fruitful ministry and martyrdom and the very stretching out of his hands. There's hope for us yet, isn't there, church? There is hope of forgiveness and restoration and redemption for those of us who have denied Jesus, sometimes in small ways and sometimes in ways that we would never want to be made public. Jesus, the spotless, righteous Son of God, perfect in all his ways, died in the place of the Peters and the Zanes, and even though he knows us and our hearts, restoration of broken people is possible. Although Jesus points to a martyr's death for Peter, and in the same breath he reissues a call for him, follow me, verse 19. Follow me like the good shepherd and lay down your life for the sheep. That is a cost that every follower of Jesus needs to be prepared for. Now, we may not need to pay with our lives like Peter, although many Christians still do daily, don't they, in difficult places in the world. But we all are called to surrender everything to him, to die to self, as we remain loyal to Jesus and live his way, which is revealed to us in the Scriptures. It may cost us our reputations. It may cost us some friendships. Sometimes it'll even cost us closeness within our families. We might be called to surrender our ambitions and our hopes. But look at the hope that Peter himself holds out to scattered believers who have been forced to flee because the empire is hostile towards them. Peter wrote, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. In our suffering for the sake of following Jesus... God is glorified and the gospel is lived out. At this point, Peter follows Jesus not only spiritually as he is restored to him in ministry, he also follows Jesus as they move apart from the others and walk on the beach. They're followed by John, verse 20 tells us. And John now comes into focus as Peter turns and sees him there a little way off. We're given an insight here into John's relationship with Jesus as the passage takes us back to the Last Supper. 
as they ate the Passover meal, John had reclined near Jesus. We are pointed to their closeness and the intimacy of their friendship. In the same meal, Peter had come to John with a question for Jesus. John and Peter were also close friends. Do you remember when Peter was first called, John and James were with him fishing because they were his business partners. Together with James and John, Peter was in a close inner circle among the apostles near with Jesus. It's Peter and John who had been together and run to the tomb when Mary Magdalene came and told them that Jesus' body was missing. They'd been together on resurrection day. John was very close to Peter and very close to Jesus. Their relationship is highlighted here in this verse. And it's highlighted because John is the focus of Peter's next interaction with Jesus in verse 21. Having heard what is coming his way, that he will die a martyr's death, Peter wants to know what John's future holds. He says, Lord, what about him? What motivates Peter's question? Is it a momentary lapse? Has the change in his heart just been undone? Is he still comparing himself with the other disciples, something that Jesus had brought into sharp relief only minutes before? Are we to believe that Peter has forgotten his confession over a comparison so quickly? Now, I know myself, it's not inconceivable, is it? Or do we need to think more generously of Peter? Given that Jesus has just revealed his own future of martyrdom to him, is he concerned for his friend? It would be really easy to be hard on Peter here, to assume the worst and argue that he's died in the womb, that he's stubborn and unchanging. Is he asking out of concern or to compare? We don't know. But what we do see is that Jesus' answer is emphatic either way. Verse 22, Jesus pretty much says, that's none of your own business. Stick to your own knitting. You follow me. I think today we'd say, you do you, if we were going to put that out there on Facebook. Peter's told he needs to walk his own walk. He needs to do what Jesus has asked him, not to get wrapped up or distracted in the call on others. It's a good reminder, isn't it? Sometimes we want to know what God has in store for others. It's so easy for us to take our eyes off Jesus and the way that he's called us to follow him in obedience. We see someone else's godly marriage when we are single or divorced or widowed and we think, what about them? What's God doing in their life? Or maybe our kids or grandkids are thriving in faith when our friends are struggling. What about them? What about their kids or grandkids? We look at a ministry which is flourishing while ours just feels like hard work. What about them? I think we can all benefit from taking heed of Jesus' words to Peter You must follow me. But other people, what is that to you? That is between them and God. Friends, that should release us. That should free us from cares and concerns and comparison and enable us to serve in his service. 
That should give us freedom to run our own race in line with our own gifts and our own call, not feel tied to someone else's. Unfortunately, Jesus' response here gave rise to a rumour among the believers. The wider church, we're told in verse 23, started to believe that that meant John would never die. But John is at pains to correct this rumour in his gospel in case a false reporting leads to unbelief or disappointment in the gospel. J. Ramsey Michaels highlights it for us. He explains why John is so careful to note this. Knowing that his own death, when it comes, might very well call into question the veracity of Jesus' pronouncement, he explains that the timing of everything, whether Jesus' coming or his own eventual death, is in Jesus' hands. That is the last we hear of Peter and Jesus' interaction. But as the writer of this gospel, John has the last word, and in it he answers Peter's question for us. We see it in his conclusion. We will spend the next two minutes before we wrap up. Coming to the conclusion in verses 24 and 25, we still have that question of Peter's ringing in our ears, what about him? Well, verse 24, John tells the reader what became of him. He assumes that you know that Peter has died and what his death was like. It had already happened when John wrote and it was widely reported within the church. People knew that Peter was dead. But he provides an account of how his life had been spent and what the emphasis of it was. He showed us how he followed, how he ran his own race. He testified to all that we have read and heard in this gospel. He researched and recorded and checked and resourced the writing of this account. He has spent his life bearing witness, sharing testimony of the life of the most marvelous Messiah so that we might believe and have life. John has recorded a great deal. Over the past few weeks, he's lifted our eyes and helped reset our expectations. He's helped to show us that we are to see Jesus as he was, the long-promised risen Saviour who gave his life to free us from sin and death, the one who would make us right with God. We see Jesus as the one who is restoring taking broken pottery shards and mending them with a gold that will never perish. Friends, we are called to follow. We are called to put our trust in this reigning risen Lord and to share the testimony of John, the good news of the gospel. And then we come to verse 25. It's a beautiful epilogue, isn't it? Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. It's so simple, but it holds an immense profundity. John's life's work has, to, has been to record the wonderful things that his Lord had done, like restoring broken lives, transforming unjust structures, 
changing hearts, raising the dead, healing the hopeless, giving spiritual sight to the blind, taking the weight of every sin upon himself and bearing the wrath of God in our place so that we might be at peace with him. The world still cannot contain news that good, can it? Isn't it a privilege to be a people, a broken people, who are restored to share and live out the good news of Jesus Christ? Why don't we pray? Lord, thank you that you're in the work of restoring things which are broken. We long to see you restoring our broken world. We long to see you restoring our broken lives and the lives of those around us. Thank you, Lord, that in the restoration, when you give us your Holy Spirit and bring us to life, you make us so precious and so valuable. Lord, we pray that you would help us in the power of your Spirit to run our own race and to live out our call in obedience to you. We pray, Lord, that we would respond as Peter, that we love you and you know it. And that we would each one help to build up your church. Lord, would you help us to share and live out the good news of Jesus every single day of our lives for his glory. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page simply by searching for Richmond Anglican Aotearoa. You can also touch base with us online at our website or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback, you can touch base with me, zane at richmondparish.nz. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.